Well, for quite a few weeks now, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke and working our way passage by passage, basically, section by section through Luke's Gospel, and we'll continue that uh, this morning. I actually had uh, the section that Don read in mind, and then uh, in preparation for the message this morning, realized in some ways I wanted to expand because I saw a bigger sort of sub-theme in Luke's Gospel that I hadn't hadn't uh, noticed before, and so uh, we'll uh, kind of recognize that longer section of Scripture from verse 30, chapter 9, verse 37 through 55. But if you were here last week, you might recall that uh, Jesus and the disciples were on the mountain, and it was, uh, Jesus was transformed, it's known in our Scripture, uh, kind of labeled the transfiguration. And it was a mountaintop experience for basically everybody who was there. And for the disciples, particularly Peter, James, and John, it it, it was no doubt a time that sharpened their faith, the clarity of their vision about who Jesus is or was, and, 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 and the purpose of why He was there. It was an expression of the kingdom of God. And I suspect in a lot of ways, as we looked at the text last week, and I appreciate the feedback from so many as I maybe helped you see the text in a way that you hadn't seen it before, as we uh, see this sort of illuminated Jesus, it blew their minds. Of course, if uh, the disciples are a lot like us, and that is we have these mountaintop experiences and then we come down from the mountain. And we don't stay there. And as we're coming down, the real world got in the way. And that was true for them. There was this boy who was tormented by a demon. And having watched in our own family with uh, Gates having seizures, knowing some of these symptoms and sort of the trauma that a family can feel so quickly when... uh, What is being described in our text feels a lot like a grand mal seizure. In fact, in uh, Matthew's account, the father had apparently misdiagnosed the symptoms as epilepsy when, in fact, they were caused by a demon. So the demon is the first problem that these disciples run into, but worse yet, the disciples in spite of everything they had just experienced in having seen Jesus and the clarity of the kingdom of God, couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus bristles. There seems to be a turn in our text where His kind of posture is a bit different than in anything that it preceded. And apparently speaking to these key followers, he calls them out. And I want to look at that sentence specifically and then broaden out just a bit to see a little wider scope of our text. Here's what he says. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? and put up with you. Bring your son here. 
Now, I've read this now a bunch of times in the last few weeks, and I was trying to figure out, who is Jesus rebuking in here? Is it, is it the crowd? Is it the father of this young man who has the demon? Or is it the disciples? And I think maybe we could say yes. But certainly the disciples, if we look at Matthew 17 as a bit of a help, couldn't drive out the demons, the text says, because they didn't have enough faith. The very thing and the very insight that they just gained on the top of the mountain. The situation, it brings to mind an Old Testament text, and in fact, there's a lot of parallelism between this verse and 941 and an Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 20. We'll read that text and you can see a little bit of the linkage. It says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Jesus essentially takes that passage from Deuteronomy 32 and turns it around just a bit. So in this Old Testament text, and then here again in Luke 941, 941, I, I see frustration. An awareness of his own time, that it's short. And, and, and he's got to bring his followers along because the mission is as he goes to his own death, is incumbent upon those who follow. And yet that seems to be still shaky at this point. So, this chapter in Luke, which started with such high hopes. Now, those of you who have been kind of patient with the process as we've kind of made our way along, Luke 9, remember it started with the sending out of the twelve to heal, to help others find faith, expressions of the kingdom of God. And now here, as we end, get to the end of Luke 9, there's still this basic struggle with this idea of what it means to believe. And so Jesus rebukes them, and it's just an ouchy passage. Then as I read the entire chapter again, I see that there is a whole series of failings of Jesus' disciples, and, and there's basically one rebuke after another. And let me just point those out, because I think it might be helpful to see this sort of sub-theme. The first one, then, is Jesus rebukes the unbelief of the disciples. That's the one we're looking at here. And so in spite of the transfiguration, there's this lack of trust in the power of Jesus. Then our text very specifically says, okay, bring the boy to me, and Jesus rebukes, number two, the unclean spirit. And that exact word is used in our text, the word rebuke. He handles the situation himself, and he rebukes the evil spirit. 
Then we read the disciples' inability to understand Jesus' impending death. It's coming up, but they don't seem to get it. And there's no real direct rebuke in our text, simply an observation that the disciples don't have much of a clue as to what's going on. Then I want to read the next section. This starts in, and you know this will be familiar to many of us, in chapter 9 and verse 46, an argument started among the disciples to which of them would be the greatest. Good time for that, right? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him, and then he said to them, whoever welcomes the little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. In other words, Jesus rebukes the disciples' pride. And it's a mild rebuke, and it's very cleverly done And by bringing this child along. The manner was soft, the point was strong, the visual was timeless. We, can, we remember it even today. Then in verse 49 of the same chapter, hope you're hanging with me here just a little bit more, the master said, John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And Jesus said, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And again, Jesus isn't particularly harsh, but offers this rebuke. And he reverses their tiny, insulated, and parochial thinking that requires others to be a part of their in-group to be legitimate, and he turns it on its head. And he says, for whoever is not against you is for you. And so he rebukes their intolerance. And then in verse 52, as this chapter winds to a close, the text says this, and he sent messengers on ahead and who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And now this is the disciples of Galilee going through Samaria. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now, these are the guys that got to take on the mission, okay, in just a few weeks. In verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. There's our word again. And that we might say it this way. Jesus rebukes ethnic prejudice. Five rebukes in 18 verses. Let me widen it out and we'll look at Scripture in a little wider scope for just a second. Proverbs 15, 31 says... He who listens to a life-giving rebuke 
will be at home among the wise. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 reads, And have you completely, completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. And one more from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here's the question, the text this morning drove me to ask. Do you know the Lord in such a way that you can welcome a rebuke? Do I know the Lord in that way? It shouldn't surprise us that the societal air we breathe is hostile to correction and reproof. Even in the most gentle approaches, it seems to me, people scoff, people react, people go ballistic seething with hostility when someone dares to correct them. And I suspect that this air is air this church breathes as well. And it begins to shape our hearts if we're not careful. And you see, if humanity is all okay, then rebuke is not life-giving. The Scripture lies. In fact, Rebuke and correction and reproof and all that stuff is just a real annoyance if everything is okay. But if God's desire, the kingdom of God, the reality of God over all the world, demands, just as Jesus points out in this passage, that we face up to our true selves. And that is sometimes hard to do. 
our pride, the culture that we're conformed to, our selfishness, where it is not okay, that it is not in the spirit of God and not in the spirit of Christ we serve and not in the best interest of the world, maybe not in the best interest of those around us. And I'll tell you this, if you can see with God's viewpoint, not even in your best interest. But if we can see with God's eyes, Church, being rebuked is a gift. It's a gift. So I got a question for you. Are you allowing? Have you given permission for God's word to rebuke you? I suspect you find certain areas of your life resistant to that. I'm not going to point out all those specifics today, and I'm not even going to analyze your heart. I'm simply offering that to you to do some analysis. And how about the people of God? Could they be ones who could bring a rebuke to you? And could you receive it? But let's go one beyond that. How about those who are antagonistic or indifferent to your faith? Could they bring rebuke to you? And could you hear? Are you allowing your enemies, your irritants to rebuke you. But you say, well, wait a minute. What if it's not deserved? A lady criticized D.L. Moody for his methods of evangelism and reaching out to people. And Moody's reply to her when she criticized him was, well, ma'am, I agree with you. I don't like the way I do it either. Tell me how to do it. And the lady replied, well, I don't do it. And then Moody replied, well, then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. But I want you to hear this morning, all progress in the life of the kingdom begins with telling the truth. It's hard to tell ourselves the truth sometimes. It's hard to hear the truth. So even when a rebuke is poorly delivered and the timing is off, or the tone is off, or the motivation seems suspect, try this. 
What if you combed that rebuke for every grain of truth and then found it and repented? Made a change. And thank God for the grace of having people in your life who will say something out of love or get this or not out of love. Because the greatest danger is that deep down in the caverns of our heart where sin lurks and festers, we are most stubborn. And we avoid our past, and we avoid our feelings, and we avoid our pain, and we avoid our fears, and we cannot grow when we avoid refusing to hear correction. So I present this as an affirmation, and I'm almost finished here this morning, in a positively stated way. Your faith in Jesus enables you to receive rebuke. The love of Christ for us unlocks the power of rebuke and makes it good whether it was intended that way or not. And this is the story of Scripture over and over. Jesus began to get tough with His disciples, and still they never had to question the depth of His love for them. And the same of true of us is true for us because of Christ, because of Christ for me, because of Christ in me, because of Christ with me, because of my identity as a child of the King beloved by God. Being rebuked is not an assault on my deepest sense of worth. It is an opportunity for me to become more like my Creator. And isn't this what we want to most want? Since our identity is fully intact in Christ, based upon all that He has done for us, we can lean into any rebuke and embrace it as a blessing. I pray the Lord has a word for you.